And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Pastor Al Baker. Uh, He works with the Vanguard Presbytery. He's been in the gospel ministry for some 35 years, and he's an evangelist with Reformed Evangelistic Fellowship. Pastor Al, it's wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you, Dan. It's always great to be with you, and I'm very, very appreciative and thankful for your ministry. (laughs) Uh, Pastor Al, you put out... um, a devotional every week, and one of the recent ones, and by by the way, it's called Forget None of His Benefits, and listeners can sign up for that. It's well worthwhile. Uh, what, the title of one of the recent ones uh, at the beginning of this month was Desperately Needed, Another Work of the Holy Spirit. And some people might say, well, Pastor Al, you're, you're not a charismatic guy. But uh, that has nothing to do with it, right? Because, yes, you are Reformed, and yes, we believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. So take it away, Pastor Al. Yeah, well, thank you, Dan. Yeah, I think, uh, to me, there's no question we need another work of the Spirit. And, um, you know, I look at what's going on in other parts of the world, in India and in Iran and these places, and it reminds me of the Apostle Paul speaking to the Romans when he says that uh, the Gospels come to the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous. Mm. And so when I see what God's doing in other parts of the world, I'm jealous. I want to see that work again. Yes. Because, um, you know, I, I came across some statistics last week that were not not that surprising, but still staggering to me. And and it's uh, someone was reporting that... Um, that the nation of England now has a, uh, Christians are a minority mm. in England, uh, less than 50%. Now, let me say this first of all. It's far worse than that, because what they're saying is if somebody claims to be a Christian, they put them in that category. We know that we know the numbers are much less than that. And it's also that that's also true in Scotland and Wales and mm. Northern Ireland, and it's true in our country. I, I remember 10 years or so ago reading an article in... Um, the Wall Street Journal editorial page, kind of uh, lamenting the uh, the loss of evangelicalism in, in the United States, and that evangelicalism has fallen on hard times. And the writer said, you know, if you really look at some of the Gallup polls, when they start asking more difficult questions like, do you believe the Bible's the Word of God? Do you believe in heaven and hell? Do you yes. believe that Christians are supposed to, you know, share the gospel? When you start looking at numbers like that, it's more like, seven or eight percent. And then last week I saw where um, uh, one of the writers was saying that when you start asking people about a Christian worldview, do they really understand what the Christian worldview is? It's more like one or two percent. So now only God knows how many true Christians are in this country, but I'm pretty convinced that it's far less than we could ever imagine. And so that got me to thinking back in history, because I love history, and just thinking about what what the Lord did back in the 18th century it was astonishing. <laughs> well, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so one of the more fascinating things to me, and of course this is the time of year that a lot of us listen to Handel's Messiah. Mm. And Handel, Handel grew up in Germany. He was born in 1685. Uh, he was born about five weeks before 
uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, hmm. and they were both from Germany. They were German Lutherans. Apparently, they never actually met each other, which is kind of interesting. But as a young man, um, uh, Handel moved to uh, to Italy, and uh, he was a, he was proficient on the organ by the age of eight. Hmm. He became a, a, a remarkably talented uh, violinist. He wrote his first Christian oratorio. At about the age of 19, when he was in uh, Italy, and then he moved to London, where he remained for the rest of his life. And he had many ups and downs in his career. He faced debtor's prison a number of times, but and he was kind of distraught and um, uh, disconsolate in uh, 1741. Things were not going well for him. And one of his friends, a man named Jennings, Mr. Jennings, um, was part of the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, which was basically a world missions organization. And he felt like, uh, Jennings felt like, we need, we need to set the Scripture to music. So he went through the Bible and found all the great themes on, um, on the, on the uh, idea of redemption. And so he strung all these passages together in three parts. One was the prophecies, the second was the personal work of Jesus, and the third was the resurrection of Christ. And the new heavens and the new earth and all of that. So he put all these passages together and, and gave it to Handel, and Handel kind of sat on it for about 18 months. It was just gathering dust on his on his shelf. And then uh, in in August of 1741, he he brought the he brought down the um, libretto and he started looking at it and he got inspired. And on August 22nd, 1741, he began to compose the music which we now know as Handel's Messiah. Mm. And uh, in 22 days, he put together what we now have is 260 pages of music, <laughs> and uh, it's just astonishing. And, uh, and those of us who, and I'm sure most of your uh, listeners have have listened to it many, many times, uh, it's just some of the most astonishing music uh, I've ever heard. And I've often said that if I believed in... Um, the Holy Spirit inspiring something outside of Scripture. <laughs> I would say that he inspired Handel when he <laughs> wrote that, because it's just um, remarkable. But what's also fascinating is at the same time, the uh, the Great Awakening was in full force. Oh, uh, yes. and, and, and John Wesley was, was preaching to vast crowds all over England <clears throat> in August and September of 1741. And Howell Harris and Daniel Rowland, who were Welshmen, were preaching the gospel all over Wales. And at that very time, um, Howell Harris was in the northern part of Wales preaching and was facing tremendous opposition. He, uh, they, uh, The people were throwing manure on him. They were uh, beating him with sticks and with their fists. And he was preaching the gospel, and he said, I, I'm... I'm I rejoice that I can shed blood for Jesus. My only regret is I stopped preaching while they were beating me. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, it's just amazing. And and then uh, Whitfield, George Whitfield, was in America at that time, and he was finishing up preaching at Savannah, and he made his way north to uh, to New Haven, Connecticut, and he preached there uh, near Yale, and hundreds of people called on the name of the Lord to be saved. Then from there he went to Boston, and then he went over in uh, early October to Northampton, Massachusetts, and preached with Jonathan Edwards at his, mm. at his church there in Northampton. And one of the writers I read uh, said that as Whitfield's preaching on that Friday night, um, 
Edwards was sitting on the front pew with his wife, Sarah, and their 11 children, and tears were streaming down his face <laughs> as he heard Whitfield lift up Jesus. And uh, we could go on and on and on. I mean, that was an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. It and was. When I read about things like that, uh, those things happened. They really did. And that's what we need today again. And the only way to explain any of that, which was occurring just about the time the the uh, Enlightenment has taken hold of France and the French uh, Revolution, which would occur in 1789. Yes. Everything in the culture was going south very quickly. And yet at the same time, there was a, an amazing movement of the Holy Spirit. And so, you know, we live in difficult times now. It's uh, pretty bleak in this country in many ways. And yet God can do a great work. And, and the only way that we could ever see anything like that is for another work of the Spirit. And the only way to explain the Great Awakening, it was a movement of the Holy Spirit. And we need that again desperately in our day. Yes. Oh, amen. Well, today we're talking with Pastor Al Baker, and he's an evangelist, and um, he has a heart for the gospel and seeing people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, During this time of the First Great Awakening, Pastor Al um, there were people pushing back. There were um, Satan was at work as well. Um, how do we handle that as as Christians uh, when we get pushback? Yeah, that's true. Uh, everywhere you look, these evangelists were facing opposition. On one occasion, Whitfield was preaching, and one of his friends was standing next to him, and they would throw they would throw stones at Whitfield. They threw mm. dead cats at him. They threw manure on him. Mm. and uh, one of his friends standing next to him was hit in the head with a rock and two days later died. Oh, my. And so, yeah, that kind of stuff. And then and then what always happens, interestingly enough, is a lo- uh, oftentimes the greatest opposition is from people within the church itself. Ah. Yeah, for example, in, in Boston, uh, one of the pastors there was uh, – uh, in great opposition to Whitfield, and his name was, uh, I think his name was Chaucer, if I'm not mistaken. No, uh, I think it was Chaucer. But anyway, uh, tremendous opposition to um, to Whitfield. And then also there was, I'm a Presbyterian, so uh, I know a little bit about this. There was a, <laughs> it was what was called the, the new side, old side controversy. Mm. And um, the old side Presbyterians, uh, claimed to believe in the Bible and the the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was and still is a doctrinal standard of Presbyterians, but they really they they, they doubted revival. They they weren't for it. They didn't like the hard preaching. They said, "Look, we're all Christians. We've all been baptized. Why are you preaching these kind of strong <laughs> messages?" You know, they they didn't like it, and so there was tremendous opposition. And the New Side Presbyterians had Whitfield and Edwards on their side. And they said, no, 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 we we believe in the Scriptures, and we believe in, in these doctrinal standards, but we also believe in the necessity of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so so there was a division uh, in the Church at that time, and as I jokingly say, um, I remember reading somebody who in the 19th century was looking at a Presbyterians, they've been known to split quite a bit, and, and the, uh, the guy said, you know, Presbyterians are like hickory wood, hard and easy to split, and so, <laughs> so, so I, oh, think, that's... I think that's kind of the situation. But sometimes it's necessary when 
when people depart from the scripture. So, sure. you know, to answer your question, there's there, yeah, there's there was great opposition, and there always is, and even today, where there's a tremendous movement of the spirit in places like India and Iran and um, Afghanistan, there's just tremendous persecution of the believers in these countries. And, mm-hmm. I'm just. I know several of. I know several people that are facing that right now in some of these countries, and they're friends of mine. Yeah. And God is just sustaining them, and they're my they're my heroes. As I watch them. That's right. Battle, you know, against all this. But to answer your question, how do we stand up against it? We just have to continue and not back down. And yes, we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You know, Jesus said. I send you out as sheep amongst wolves, so be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So you have to, you know, be careful where you speak and so forth. But at the end of the day, you trust you trust God in the midst of it all, and and you continue. And you, you see, as he uh, as Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Mm. So that's what we have to do. Amen. Yes. Um. The first great awakening, uh, in my mind at least, is a little bit contrasted with the second great awakening. And um, my opinion of the second is not that it was evil or anything like that, but um, was more um, emotional, more um, Gnostic, I guess I would say. Uh, Can you describe it for us to better understand that second great awakening? Yeah, that's a great point. Dan, um, actually, Ian Murray wrote a book called Revival and Revivalism, and uh, he takes up that issue. And um, the First Great Awakening was, was without question, a God-centered revival where there was a very, very high view of, of the triune God, the sovereignty of God, his electing grace, and so forth. The Second Great Awakening was a mixed bag. They, okay. There was still that. There still was that emphasis with men like um, Asa Hell Nettleton mm-hmm. and um, uh, James Henley Thornwell, oh, yes. and, uh, a man named Daniel Baker and Benjamin Palmer and Charles Hodge at Princeton uh, Seminary and those men. They were they were very uh, committed to uh, to the scriptures yes. and to revival as the uh, new side. Presbyterians were in the 1740s and 1750s, okay. but there was also another side, and that was more of a man-centered approach. And really, the 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 problem with their theology was they uh, these people, and they were championed by men like Charles Finney. Most people would know who Finney was, oh, yeah. and um, so uh, Finney and, and people like him really had a problem with with the doctrine of uh, the imputation of Adam's sin. Mm. Romans 5 says that, uh, that because sin, uh, sin entered the world through Adam, so death became, uh, came upon all men. So that means that we believe that when people are born, they're born sinners. Uh, their heart is corrupt. They're not as evil as they could be, but their heart is corrupt, and uh, they will not seek after God, and there must be, an, there must be a, a remarkable work of grace to to convict and to regenerate, but Finney, den- Finney denied that, and so he believed basically that um, that we hold the we hold the final say, 
Um, uh, you know, if we want to be saved, we can be saved. It's it's up to us. Mm-hmm. And so that once once somebody believes that, then the temptation is to use whatever means necessary to get a decision. Oh, right. And so Finney came up with the new measures, the anxious bench, and he would call people out by name, and he would uh, browbeat people, so to speak, and he was pretty, pretty, pretty rough on people in that regard. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and, I, and generally speaking, since about the 1830s, I would say, that man-centered approach to Christianity has, has been in full sway, mm-hmm. has held full sway in this country. Uh, there's some movement back toward a more God-centered approach, but that position um, has been pretty predominant since the 1830s. And I think that's why we have such a weakness in Christianity. You know, um, I've said before that there are churches in this country now who can say they have 70,000 members. I live in Birmingham, and there's a church here that claims they have 70,000 people coming mm-hmm. on Sunday to about 15 different locations. And uh, there's no doubt there's a lot of people there who who love Jesus. I'm not, and I'm, I'm not their no, judge. Sure. I don't know, right? But But when I look and I ask the question, okay, what kind of impact or what's, what kind of societal impact are we making? Now, they are yes. doing some good and helping the, the poor and the needy and so forth. But as far as a transformation of our culture, you know, that begins to affect politics and families and the business, the private and public sector, of government and, and commerce and so forth, I, I'm just not seeing that. I'm not seeing that. And, right. and until we see that kind of societal impact we're going to continue to go down 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 yes so that's my great burden yes 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 that makes an awful lot of sense um i'm very concerned about the societal and the as you put it the transformation of culture uh it it comes from people who have fallen in love with the lord jesus christ have a desire to obey his law his ways and and they want to glorify Christ in every single thing that they do and and basically take every thought captive not just some but every thought captive to the obedience of Christ now today we're talking with pastor Al Baker and pastor Al I mentioned really briefly in the beginning that you're in the Vanguard Presbytery I know that sounds like a deep dive but what are some of the uh, characteristics of your presbytery, uh, Vanguard Presbytery? Well, yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we uh, most of us have come out of the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, and I still have many friends there. But um, and everybody has to uh, be their own judge about these matters. But I, I began to be concerned about progressivism in the denomination and uh also the way they were handling the homosexual issue yes so several of us felt that way so we left and uh so we really we we try to say that uh, that we are a new side old school threefold office presbyterian church and very briefly the new side is what i said a moment ago about the the great awakening you know we believe in the holy spirit we believe in the confession of faith and the scriptures and so forth old school means that that was a 19th century problem the presbyterians had and that means yes we believe in the revival we are new side like the 18th century men were but we're committed to the scriptures and the theological truth that of the imputation of Adam's sin, all were born sinners. Yes. So we would stand against the new measures of Finney, 
and that man-centered approach. And then also, we're a threefold office. Most Presbyterians believe in the office of elder and the office of deacon, and they say that the office of evangelist no longer exists. Oh. And, uh, that's a that's a real shame, and I, I just don't see that in the Scripture. I, I mean, if we still need to evangelize the world, and certainly we do, oh my. Then, then would it not stand to reason that God would need the office of evangelist to help bring that along? Mm-hmm. So that thing, that's one of the things that causes us to stand out more uh, against okay. others. Is we really believe that God raises up men who are gifted to be evangelists. They may not be pastors. They may not have a shepherd's heart, uh, but they have an evangelistic zeal. Ah, and so they need, to lead, they need to lead their congregation in evangelism, teaching them how to evangelize, how to stand against error, and um, and to mobilize people to go out into the community. So that's yes. that's a that's a major well, that's, major uh, component of what we're doing. That's very helpful in my understanding. Thank you for uh, dragging our listeners through those specifics. <laughs> Put it that way. Yeah. Now, yeah. Pastor Al, you you came from the Northeast, and now you're down in Alabama. Uh, what is um, the people like, um, if you were to characterize, I know broad strokes are dangerous many times, but um, do you feel a difference in, in the reception towards the things of the Lord down where you are in Alabama versus here in the Northeast? Yeah, well, first of all, we loved, we were in Connecticut, West Hartford, and we loved it there, my wife and I. Yeah. Our kids were grown by the time we moved there, and we just loved it. We loved the people of our church. It's probably our favorite church we ever served. <laughs> so we, we have great we have great affection for the people of Connecticut. But it, it was hard. I mean, they, uh, you know, they they're, uh, they're, tend to be very secular, uh, yeah. and unless the Holy Spirit's working, they're, they're not going to show any interest. But we did see interest. We saw people converted there. In the South, it's different in the sense that if you're a Southerner, you probably grew up going to church at some point. I jokingly say when I'm preaching in the open air, I know all of y'all out there are Christians. You know, well, mm-hmm. that's not true, but they think they are a lot of times because <laughs> they, you know, they got baptized when they were, uh, you know, 12 years old. They walked the church aisle and mm-hmm. so forth, so they all think they're saved. And so we have to kind of, as I often say. You know, you got to get people lost before they can be saved. And a lot of people, in the, a lot of people in the South, um, will pay lip service to the gospel. They know a little bit about it, but when you really drill down and start asking very pointed questions, like, "Okay, uh, how would you tell me that I that I need Jesus? How would you introduce me to Jesus?" And but when you when you ask questions like that, most of them can't do it. No. So there's far there's far fewer Christians here in the South than we think than most people might think. There's still a cultural Christianity, yes. but that's going away, too. Yes, It's not what it used to be, but it's still, it's still there to a, to a, fairly, uh, to a yes. fair degree. Yes, yes. And uh, finally, um, the darkness of, of some areas now where we see basically Satanism on the rise. We see murals painted on the side of the building, which is uh, Eastern gods. Uh, we see little Eastern yeah. gods all over the place now. Uh, any comments about that? What's going on there? Well, even in Birmingham. In Birmingham, huh. there's about three or four fetish stores here. And uh, I've had friends that have actually gone in to talk to these people, and they're, they're, they're outright... They're, they literally are pagans. Yes. And some of them are devil worshipers. And 
We, I even have a family member of a young person who reads tarot cards. She's oh, all into tarot cards. So, yeah, so there's a lot of witchcraft going on. Um, you know, people are religious by nature, and if there's, yes. uh, there's a vacuum, it's going to be filled with something. So they're filling it with Eastern mysticism, uh, pantheism, atheism, uh, you know, Gnosticism. You mentioned that word a moment ago. Mm. So all of these things are, all of these things are there. And um, it's darkness, and it's the devil. It's yes. it's, uh, it's, uh, it's evil, and uh, and yet this is the time in which God has placed us. Amen. There's, there's always, you know, there's always been evil and wickedness in every call, every generation. Yes. Paul refers in his day to the Philippians that we live in a wicked and perverse generation. That was true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. So that's not changed. So again, the solution is always the same. It's the gospel. The gospel, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, where he takes out the heart of stone and replaces with the heart of flesh and causes us to love God and hate sin. Yes. That's what's got to happen in our (laughs) culture, and only God can do it. Yeah, let us pray for a mighty moving of God's Holy Spirit in revival, and then a hunger and thirst after righteousness that, um, culturally speaking, we will embrace um, the standards of our Lord and Savior. Uh, Al Baker, my friend and brother, uh, thank you very, very much for joining us today. If someone wants to find you online or maybe sign up for um, your your mailing, how would they go about doing that? Well, they could just Google, forget none of his benefits, and one of those uh, devotionals will pop up, and there'll be a, a link there to uh, just to okay. sign up. And uh, we, we would love for that. And I love writing those articles, and I, you know, the people all over the world that read these things. I'm always amazed by that. That's the beauty of, uh, of our modern-day technology, I think. It is. It's yeah. a blessing. Uh, again, the blog is Forget None of His Benefits. Pastor Al Baker, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure. Merry Christmas to everyone. Thank you. Same to you. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.